Coming up, what an excellent day for... Just opening the envelope here. An Oscars special! Yay! Yeah! Well, howdy, folks, and welcome to another very special episode of The Exorcist Minute. Normally, we examine, extrapolate, and excavate, but today we will ponder, puzzle, and pontificate over this year's Oscars nominees and also talk a little bit about the Oscar drama surrounding our beloved film, The Exorcist. My name is Lester Ryan Clark. And I'm Keenan Diaz. And I'm Ian Hinden. And I guess today we will be your holy hosts as we discuss The Exorcist at the Oscars. But before Before we get into Hollywood history, I thought we'd open the show by talking about the contenders for this year. Guys, I gotta admit, this is actually the first time I've been infected with Oscar fever to the point where I wanted to try to watch as much as I can before the Oscars. This show has uh, probably got a lot to do with that. Just being here and doing this with you, Keenan, it's sort of reawoken in me this love for film and film history and just... All of the moving parts that go into making a movie and and the fact that our movie, The Exorcist, has this extra bit of Oscars lore attached to the whole thing, right? Made me think of the Oscars again in this way that I hadn't for quite a while. Right. And and Mm. the the lore of the Exorcist of the Oscars is uh, pulled up constantly whenever anybody is bitching about the Oscars. (laughs) They say, (laughs) why are you – well, Lester, why are you paying attention to the Oscars? They don't care. They make the bad decisions all the time. Like, look what they did to The Exorcist Mm -hmm, with the mm -hmm. poor, poor movie The Exorcist at the Oscars. No, you're exactly right, Keenan. Um, but yeah, it, it like all the same, it did get me interested in the Oscars again. So, so this year, guys, I did it. I set out to watch as much as I could. At first, I didn't know what I should watch, right? There are so many great movies this year. And then it became a problem, as I'm sure you both know, of where to watch all these movies, right? Some of them are on Netflix. Some of them are on Amazon. Some of them are exclusively available on on, uh, some other single uh, streaming device, right? I mean, Jesus, I'm not buying Apple accessories. I'm just trying to watch a movie. (laughs) Um, And if that weren't enough, I, I had to decide what order to watch all these things in because that's also vital, right? Like you don't want to follow up Puss in Boots with the Banshees of Inisherin, but then again, you don't want to watch Banshees, uh, Triangle of Sadness, and then All Quiet on the Western Front all in the same week. Not unless you want to have a, like a really depressing week. So <laughs> I think Puss in Boots and the Banshees of Inisherin are more similar than you're giving them credit for. <laughs> well, there we go, right? I should have done that, right? But like – so there I was, right? I was pre- I was presented with this conundrum of what to watch, where to watch it, and when to watch it. And it was really stressing me out until ultimately I just decided to watch everything everywhere all at once. Um, 
And that was, I think, the best decision I could have possibly made. I don't know why I didn't see that coming, Lester. <laughs> okay, so now you guys got to make up a fake story that ends with the title of your nomination. Oh, Go. God, like we're Billy Crystal. <laughs> hey, oh, uh-oh. <laughs> no, actually, okay, so that that could have that could have gone a lot of ways, right? Like I could have been like, and that's when I realized it was all quiet on the Western Front. Yes, no. um, exactly. <laughs> and there I was. <laughs> there I was. I had consumed an entire pizza all by myself, and all that was left was a triangle of sadness. <laughs> that's how uh, the Simpsons describes Moses Lex's love life. They say, "What would the movie uh, version of your love life be?" Yeah, all quiet on the Western Front. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I feel like such a the whale. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, that's right. Yeah, think of some anecdote that ends with Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. <laughs> Not just Pinocchio, Guillermo del Toro's specifically Pinocchio. Yes. The the nice thing though is uh, if you don't know where to start uh, with the Oscars, everybody everybody always has uh, their plan for where you should start, right? Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I think uh, when you were first telling us, oh, I'm going to watch every single you know Oscar movie, you know, I, I was like, oh, uh, make sure you watch this one and make sure you watch this one, and you know, those <laughs> are my favorites. And I I probably have the same problem that uh, a whole lot of Academy members have, which is mm-hmm. I haven't seen everything. Right. Um, And that's not stopping me from suggesting any to you. And it's not stopping them from voting on any of them. Mm. Um, So, (laughs) so I'm saying uh, I would be a great Academy member, basically. Ah, I see. I see. Yeah. There's never been uh, a year where I've seen literally everything. Um, Mm -hmm. If you are an Academy member, they encourage you to go to special screenings for like the short films and the documentaries and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, So, because yeah, you can vote for best animated short film without having seen all all the films there's nothing stopping you from that yeah yeah but i try to not necessarily give my opinion about what should win in the category unless i've seen everything in that category mm-hmm. which i know is not what everybody does but Mm-mm-mm. well we can we can kind of start at the top with the movie that has the most nominations this year with 11 is everything everywhere all at once and, ah, uh, mm. i know that lester um had come to that late and but ian was a big fan from the uh, beginning as soon as it was out yeah before it was an oscar contender Oh, yeah, we were I think a a few of us were sort of hyped for that movie. Uh, Just I don't know, something from the beginning, maybe the marketing material made it kind of seem like, hey, this is uh, this is definitely something that's going to appeal to us. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's uh, it's interesting because like uh, the Daniels, uh, I I think my familiarity with them before this movie was their work on uh, music videos. Right. Mm. And they're just, you know, just fun, bombastic music videos that you're kind of like. Hey, if these guys can do this this kind of stuff in four minutes, yeah, let's let's give them a couple hours and see what they come up with, right? Yeah, right. I think they've done one of the best music videos of all time, which is for a really annoying song called "Turn Down for What." You you know, you know that song, Lester? I imagine, right? Yeah, uh, sorry, it's called "Turn Down for What." <laughs> That's right, exactly. <laughs> um, but that music video makes me like that song better. It's it's as Ian says, bombastic, and it is about you know BDE, as the kids uh, would call it later, big dick mm-hmm. energy, and, uh, ah, and, yeah. and giving that it to uh, to a young Asian male, and right. and his uh, BDE breaks down levels of um, of an apartment building until everyone's having <laughs> the time of their life. It has nothing to I do see. with what the song is about. There's no like story in the song to to narrate, right. but. But they did it, and um, I also like their their uh, their feature film, Swiss Army Man, with Paul Dano and Daniel Radcliffe. Where Daniel Radcliffe plays ah. a corpse that Paul Dano um, Paul Dano operates him as a um, well Swiss Army knife of sorts, but also a, mm-hmm. a 
boat. What else does he use him as? A cannon? Um, oh, gosh, uh, yeah. Because his body starts filling with gas, and so he realizes right. he can use him for, for all these things. And, uh, and then he... Uh, he it, it also becomes this sort of Wilson-esque uh, situation where he's at mm-hmm. least got somebody to talk to while he's like stuck out in the middle. It's a little bit less of a leap to imagine Daniel Radcliffe talking to you than Wilson. Well, I mean, you know, right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but also operating, uh, also operating Daniel Radcliffe through his, um, his rigor mortis penis. So that's a recurring motif in their films. I see. Mm-hmm. I see. Interesting. Yeah. So with all that, what did you think of their movie, Everything Everywhere All at Once, uh, where they are the front runners for Best Picture and Best Director this year, uh, Lester? Oh, my God. I loved it. Um, it was it, – it, it, oh, gosh. Like I, I knew Michelle Yeoh from um, uh, weirdly um, Memoirs of a Geisha was the first thing that I saw her in. Sure. But no, she, like, like she, she stuck out to me in that movie. She did such a great job. And then so I just started like looking up like all this Hong Kong cinema um, and seeing her in that. And then also uh, uh, like, like being in Hong Kong and, and uh, uh, you know, having everybody talk about her over there, uh, watching uh, her stuff over there as well. I think one of the treats of the movie was have we decided like like how much are we going to spoil how much are we not going to don't like, spoil uh, don't spoil <laughs> okay okay no spoilers okay no spoilers I'm no not going to tell you what happens in this music video uh, at all <laughs> so just go pull it up on YouTube yourself and uh, there might be dancing there might not be dancing I, I won't even say I won't all tell right. you I, I will say in this movie everything happens mm-hmm. um, it takes place everywhere mm-hmm. and it happens all at once <laughs> Um, but no, I like we we had like a a, a very nice um, uh, cameo uh, by someone, and that w- that was Uh-oh. like one of my favorite parts. Yeah, we can't I spoil think. that. Yeah, yeah. So we won't. <laughs> so we won't say that. But but um, they were auctioning I, that character off for charity, and I wish I could have bought him, but he was he was like twenty four thousand dollars or something crazy like that. Oh wow. Oh wait, we might be talking about a different uh, person. <laughs> Who are you talking about? Uh, well, I was talking about uh, Jamie Lee Curtis. No, that's not a cameo. Uh, She's up for an Oscar this year. She's you know, right. Yeah, her. she is. Which that that was something that that kind of okay. So uh, getting back to like my impression of it, mm-hmm. that was something that kind of uh, threw me for a loop because like when she appeared in the movie, mm-hmm. I I was like, oh, haha, this is a funny little like cameo that's going mm-hmm. on. She does such a great job playing like. I don't know, like out of type, you right. know, uh, and, and this is like, this, this is really great. This is the mark of a great actor, somebody who can do like this, this comedic role and completely, completely like transformed in this, in this costume, in this, in this makeup, um, you know, and, and this, uh, this persona. And then she came back. Right. And then she came back again and she became <laughs> like an even more important character. I was like, oh, wow, she's she's central to the plot. Like she's right. this big deal. But then like in in the other uh, parts of the story, like she's she's this bigger deal. And I'm like, oh, my God, like this is. Um, yeah, it was it was a real treat to, uh, to to witness that. Yeah, that is one of the parts I'm most impressed about with everything everywhere all at once is that they're mm. able to get Jamie Lee Curtis into this part, uh, as you say, against type. She says that she just stopped sucking in her gut and she just, you know, for <laughs> getting getting into that part she was just letting herself be the 60 year old woman that she was and not and not like the sex pot that she had been you know cultivated into in the in the 80s right and that that was just her normal body no no fat suit nothing you know that was just what she looks like really yeah that's how she says it and that her character's name is Deidre Bobidra you know it's like set up to be like this one note sort of joke character but then but then by the end of the piece I'm crying over this character Deidre Bobidra I think that that's a great um, magic trick they pull they pull the rug out from under you 
you and, and yes. say like this is all going to be just laughs it's it, we're all making fun of all these things and there are other characters i yeah don't don't spoil this for people but there's another cameo from a disney film <laughs> in mm-hmm. the movie that i was crying over um mm-hmm. that you think is a joke and then you end up bawling over yeah yeah <laughs> What was kind of interesting to me about this movie is because there's there's so much that was in it for me, um, and yet you know there's uh, there's still a lot of it that's kind of aimed at the the Asian experience, and uh, uh, so here's a little cool thing uh, you might not know, but uh, Lester and I have both had experience uh, living overseas in Asia. Um, I was working in Macau, and uh, Lester was in Hong Kong, right? Um, and so there was this very, there was this detail that I was like, man, I think that just a lot of audiences don't see what's happening here, but it's, uh, it's a scene at the beginning where Joy is, uh, she's trying to talk to her grandfather and it's clear from like, you know, the way they're all reacting to each other that, uh, they're, uh, she's not speaking this foreign language, uh, very well at all. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Um, Yeah. But I, I don't know unless you, you've like had experience with it that it's it's even more than that because she's speaking to her grandfather in Mandarin mm-hmm. and right. all of them are speaking Cantonese. Uh-huh. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so, you know, it's, it's my time living overseas, like a lot of families, they kind of in Hong Kong, especially they just sort of switch between English and Mandarin and mm-hmm. Cantonese. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so it's it's not even that she's not speaking this language like well enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not even speaking the same language. Mm-hmm. Right, mm-hmm. right. Um, and so it makes me wonder what other kinds of like details are there in other movies that I'm just I'm not aware of because I, I don't have just the, the cultural consciousness, you know. But uh, no, I, I uh, this this is the one that I, I think I was uh, harassing Lester to watch first because I liked <laughs> it so much. Um, right. There's a lot of goodwill for the movie right now in terms of the Oscars race because it would be, um, you know, the first movie with the primarily Asian cast. It would yeah. be a relatively cheap movie, somewhere under $25 million that actually has been a hit. Most Best Picture winners recently have not been financially successful before the Oscars, and this one has been. Um, and then there's the comeback stories of, say, seeing uh, Jamie Lee Curtis in a new light, a beloved actor, but has never gotten like the critical attention from the Oscars that perhaps she has uh, deserved. And then also, for um, Ki Kwan, who uh, had been, you know, written off. He had been a child actor in The Goonies and um, right. Indiana Jones Part 2. And, mm-hmm. you know, his name in that movie was Short Round. And, um, you know, he that character was more famous than the actor. People would just talk about Short Round or this is like a Short Round character. And it'd be sort of a, um, a stand-in phrase for like um, um, a racist trope in movies even. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, like, like him coming into his own and, and, and like being this, and he's up, he's up for, for a nomination as well. Right? Yeah. He's the front runner for the best supporting actor Oscar. He's won every single uh, precursor award except for the, uh, the BAFTA award, the British Academy mm. Award. Yeah. So wow. people are looking for this movie as sort of the little dog that could, or that's not the name for it, the little engine that could. Yeah. Um, and it's by A24, which is a distributor that a lot of people in the industry really love, but has not had a best picture win yet. Yeah. But yeah, um, so I mean, like, like, yeah, if we're, if we're, uh, if we're giving away the ghost here, um, yeah, I like a lot of my money is on uh, everything everywhere all at once. Yeah, it is the front runner right now. I'm wondering, uh, so what else have you seen? I don't want to jump to necessarily the movies that you haven't taken a look at, but. Right. Yeah. So of the best pictures, mm-hmm. let's see, I'll, I'll start with those. I have seen, I'm looking at the official Oscars. Um, oh, dang it. This is the 1974 one. <laughs> I was like, I don't, I don't remember any of these except, oh, the exorcist is there. <laughs> That's a show that we do. Um, um, we're not going to be spoiling who won the best picture in 1974. So you're going to have to tune in yourself and, and see what's up. Okay, there we go. Hang on, hang on. Let me just, let me just get this. 
Best picture should be at the very top or the very bottom. Why? What are they doing with this? There we go. Well, Best you picture. Scroll all the way to the bottom, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. So, so I have seen uh, Banshees of Inisherin. Good. Elvis. Uh, everything, everywhere, all at once. Mm-hmm. The Fablemans. Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, of of the ten, that is what I have seen. Great. So just the four. All right. Um, but then I've also seen like uh, uh, Pinocchio, mm-hmm. and oh, there was another. The whale. The whale. Yes, the whale. I've seen, and um, most of the the boy, the mole, the fox. Oh, and I the haven't horse. seen that yet. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Great. Well, why don't we talk next about another movie that could potentially win Best Picture? I think that the uh, the Dark Horse, if there is something that's going to um, uh, win over everything ever all at once, would be The Banshees of Inisherin, the British movie by Martin McDonough, who would set in Ireland. Mm. Now, I said it's a lot like Puss in Boots, uh, which you saw already. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Ian, I've seen Banshees, um, and you've seen Puss in Boots. Have you seen Have right, you seen so- Banshees? I haven't, but apparently okay. we're we've uh, we're we're basically we've watched the same thing. <laughs> essentially, essentially, right? So just 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 um um just replace um Colin Farrell is that mm-hmm. it? Yeah. yeah, with uh, with uh, Antonio Banderas, <laughs> and we're good to go. Put right. some put some boots on him, and there we go. No, I think that there's something of a similarity in the main relationships in uh, the Banshees of Inisherin and the relationship that starts off in Puss in Boots between Puss in Boots and um, Kitty Softpaws, who is his best friend ex. Beyonce. So I, that's where I am sort of uh, leaning on to. But um, the Banshees of Inisherin, just as the premise of the movie, is one of the saddest things that I can think of, which is um, a uh, this one friend decides he doesn't want to be friends with his uh, his buddy anymore. And that's how the movie starts. Um, and that sounds like the premise for like a Dawson's Creek episode, right? Or like an iCarly episode. And this is the first time I've seen that subject being taken seriously by a like serious group of filmmakers. And so it became one of the saddest things I've ever seen. Hmm. The trailer was actually kind of deceptive. And maybe that's why I came away from the movie Mm -hmm. feeling the way I did. Mm -hmm. Because I thought, like after watching the trailer, um, and just the way that the trailer was cut, I thought it was going to be this cute, like, a, a slice of life in this small Irish town where these two guys who are famously buddies are suddenly not buddies anymore mm-hmm. and the whole town is affected by it. And that's exactly what it is, <laughs> except it's fucking depressing. Yeah, because like, that's really <laughs> sad when you think about it. I thought it was going to be, it's just like, so you don't, you don't want to hang out with me no more? No, I don't want to hang out with you anymore. How can I get him to want to hang out with me some more? Right. Like I gotta, I gotta get my groove back, or right. or something, you know. And but no, that wasn't it at all. Yeah. Oh my gosh, it's about two entirely different philosophies about friendship and how they cannot be uh, reconciled together. Um, right? Mm-hmm. They have two entirely different ideas, and and the one guy, Patrick, who Colin Farrell plays, has an idea of like, well, friendship is for keeping each other company. He doesn't have to have a goal to it at all, right? Mm-hmm. And Brendan Gleeson, who plays Colm, has decided that uh, his friendship with uh, Patrick has been hurting him because he hasn't been allowing himself to discover um you know what he wants to do and to create and those are completely incompatible Mm -hmm. and it is just incredibly incredibly tragic for something Mm. that's as small as that idea right 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 Mm. oh yeah that was that was of all of them even of the whale that was like the harder watch for me Mm -hmm. right 
Like, because what- I, uh, mm. I I like to uh, I've told this to Keenan before. I don't know if I've ever told this to Lester before, but mm. I'm a big fan of very sad movies. Mm-hmm. Oh, <laughs> and uh, and uh, so I tell folks, uh, you know, like if I watch a movie and oh, it makes me feel really sad, then, uh, then oh, then I feel great. But mm-hmm. if I'm watching a movie and it makes me feel great. Well, I just feel terrible. <laughs> mm. yes, Ian, well, has, Ian yeah. has specifically uh, uh, come to me um, with like recommendations. He's like, you got to watch this. It'll make you feel like shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I, think I don't know if that's a spoiler. No, that's the idea of Martin McDonough. Like he, he makes movies that aren't necessarily easy. I think his least successful movie is one called Seven Psychopaths. And in that one, it's just like, well, they're psychopaths. And so you can kind of wash your hand of the whole thing. And mm-hmm. these are two incredibly likable people. And everyone in the village that they meet is incredibly likable. And they get sucked into this war between these two friends. And you're like, oh, that's terrible. I like everybody here. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. And it's, it's awful things are going on to them. Yeah. Like real yeah. life. Like I, I legitimately wanted them to become friends again. Yeah, I was well. I was like, why are you like, like, there's nothing wrong with either of you guys. Right. It's like, ah. Uh, They're great. Yeah. They're buddies. Nope. Can't uh, do it. Um, And so this has gotten the the first Oscar nomination for Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson, which, uh, you know, Mm. these are people who've been respected for a very long time in the independent films. And then also one for Barry Keoghan, who is a a younger actor who's been in Mm. Dunkirk and um, uh, what's that one movie? Um, I need to sound smarter than that. In Mm. Dunkirk and the... um, the Killing of a Sacred Deer. Um, mm. and, you know, he's been around for a while, and this is his first nomination. And, and uh, um, you know, people are, are also rallying around this film. Yeah, yeah. Whew, yeah. I remember I remember uh, seeing Brendan Gleeson. I think the first one, uh, thing I saw him in was uh, Gangs of New York. Oh, right. Actually. Uh-huh. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Um, which I always associate with um, New York-style pizza. <laughs> Specifically, we- do you remember, Ian? <laughs> I well, so uh, we saw that movie. I think no joke, like five times <laughs> in the theater. Mm. We just we went crazy about this movie, and mm-hmm. for us, it was like it was such a big event. The reason, in particular, uh, that it uh, it makes you recall pizza, if I'm correct, mm-hmm. is the one of the times we saw it. We did sneak an entire large pizza <laughs> yes. into the movie theater. Yes, in my backpack. Right? Yes, so th- I was um, so I was working at that theater. Not going to say its name, <laughs> but um, this was back in Las Vegas. I was working at that theater, which was in a casino, and right next to the theater was this um, uh, pizzeria. And uh, so I would go there at lunch, but like it w- also like after work, I would go and see movies. Uh, so yeah, like like one of those days, Ian and I, we just we got a whole pizza. It was a big old pizza, guys, and <laughs> we folded the box <laughs> so that it could fit into Ian's backpack. But then that's still um, sideways. And then it's still sideways. How did we well. how did we manage this? <laughs> I I just think it's so funny though that we were just like a little we were like a crew of hedonists that we were like, well, why why don't we deserve to be eating a giant pizza while we watch Gangs of New York? Like, right. Why why should we let anything stop us from making this dream come true? Right. Yeah. Um, Which is set in like 1864, <laughs> like before there was pizza in America, before anyone had right. had a pizza in America. No, no, no. Keenan, Keenan, you don't, you don't understand. It was New York style pizza. <laughs> right. We were watching Gangs of New York. All right. Time has no meaning. Okay. <laughs> I mean, we tried a Chicago-style pizza, but it ended up leaking into my shoes. Yeah. 
I think though, because it's uh, one of the things that I uh, there's like a disconnect between what people consider like the the general viewing audience uh-huh. and the Oscars, and a lot mm. of folks are like, oh, why why would I want to watch a movie that makes me feel sad? Why do I want to watch a movie like when I can just watch stuff that you know is like cool and fun all the time? Totally right. right? I'm going to pay this money. Why do I want to? pay money and time for a bad experience. Right. I already feel good. I don't want to, I don't want to change that. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and like, uh, yeah, absolutely. I get that. But I just, I guess for me, I feel like a lot of the, uh, a lot of the art I want to consume, I, you know, I want it to be instructive to me in some way because it's like, you know, the, the world is just full of complicated things. Mm. And I feel like, you know, a movie like uh, Banshees basically is like, you know what? sometimes the world is just full of complicated things mm, and I, I like can't that. really tell you, I can't even tell you what the answer is right. to those things. Best I can do is just prepare you for them that they're going to happen. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, again, I want to bring that to Puss in Boots, the last wish, which is one of your favorite movies of the year. Ian, is that right? Yep. I did not. I, uh, okay. Um, also, so you're going to learn a lot about me, I think, in some of these, <laughs> uh, which might be unfortunate for you. But uh, I did spend a couple years of my life uh, dressing like Shrek professionally. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's probably a few years out where I'm allowed to say that now without uh, mm-hmm. anyone coming after me. You um, were you were Shrek's friend. Uh, were, <laughs> that, that's correct. Were, I was a you friend. You were Shrek's Shrek. friend. What do you mean you were Shrek's friend? You were Sh- <laughs> oh, Keenan, don't even pretend you don't know what that means. He was Shrek. He was Shrek's friend. What? Shrek, Shrek, Keenan, Keenan, there could be children listening. Shrek is real. Exorcist Ian, podcast, kids. Yes. To this, to this Oscars no, special no, no, no. Exorcist podcast. Kids don't think Shrek is real. Shrek is absolutely real. And Ian Hinden so worked saying, like, at like, Universal Studios and he was Shrek's good friend. Okay, I, th- I think I understand what you're saying. Like, if you dress up as Santa at the mall, you are not Santa. You are Santa's friend, you're right? Santa's no. Friend. Okay. No, that that's a saying? whole different thing. <laughs> Um, but Ian Ian played Shrek for several years uh, at at Universal uh, Studios. Fine, if I'll you just want to, if you just want to, just like steal people's childhoods away from them, go ahead. Shrek go ahead and say real. that. I, I will tell you. I will tell you who I am not friends with is Smash Mouth because I have heard All Star more than anyone on the planet. I think if there's an Oscar for how many times you've heard All Star, mm-hmm. that's that's where I'm going to come in. Um, so I've been like a little bit familiar with Shrek, and I got to tell you, uh, Puss in Boots. Um, I've just never really liked that character. Just uh, haven't really dug him. Haven't really gotten into it. And uh, so I'm always fascinated when they like they make like a story that manages to turn it around. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so yeah, I uh, I was I was all in. What's what's happening to this cat in this movie? And uh, just amazing animation. Just uh, it, it goes to incredibly dark places, which I right. thought was just fantastic about um, yeah that you can only have one wish and so there are a bunch uh-huh. of people who are working for the hero's side but there can only be one wish right mm-hmm. so they and they are they are incompatible with each other like banshees of inishirin and then on the mm-hmm. other side of it there are villains who are making alliances with each other to get the last wish and they're all going to screw each other over because there can only be one interesting i i kind of like what you're saying there because i i thought where you're going with that is you know you were going to talk about you know the the theory that there's oh there's only like 13 stories or eight possible stories or two possible stories depending on who you ask right That's what some people say yeah so we're kind of just you know repurposing uh these stories in all this manner but uh mm-hmm. the it's the artfulness 
in which you do that, which is what uh, the Oscars is celebrating then, right? I think there are some genuine surprises in Puss in Boots too. Which, which you shouldn't that that sentence shouldn't be said right like you should think that like the sequel to Puss in Boots should just be like a rehash like giving people exactly what they had in the last one I think that the previous Puss in Boots movie is really terrible um I would not watch that again at all I think part of the trouble with that is that they they sort of treat uh Puss in Boots like the one note character that Ian was seeing him as and saying well we better add all these other crazy new characters in them and, and forget about the basic of, of Puss in Boots uh, here we have him where they take that character seriously. What if it was this guy who was full of um, vim and verve and he only has one life left and he's screwed over a lot of people in his life and what happens when that all catches up to him? And they take that seriously. Um, there is This has been going around on online. Um, there is a scene where Puss has a panic attack. Um, oh, that is incredibly frightening. Would you agree? And I mean, that that is um, quite a scene. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, that's uh, that's that's the that's one of the the high points of the movie for me. And uh, like I said, oh yeah, I, if it's I like you, you want you want to feel bad, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh, I think that's the masterful thing about it is mm-hmm. uh, you know like previously if you told me like oh yeah it's Puss in Boots and uh, he's gonna be ha- he's gonna have troubles and I, yeah he deserves those troubles but <laughs> then uh, then in this in this movie like it gets to that and I'm like oh gosh I. I am so worried about him and right. uh, and what's going to happen and uh, wow. yeah so. yeah that's that scene and, and how they deal with the panic attack has been circulating on social media about this is how panic attacks work and like taking that seriously so I mean they take him to some pretty dark places um, as well as having just amazing artwork and uh, a much mm-hmm. more clever plot than it would need to be to in order to be a hit movie I think it kind of like it got me thinking about like just like the whole kind of. Uh, construction and production of movies that uh it still baffles me that it's possible for anything to get made at all right um because i feel like when i watch this movie like the the script is very strong these villains are very strong right Mm -hmm. and it's it's just funny it's all this stuff but i i don't think that the way the industry works somebody could correct me um I don't think the industry works that somebody was like, oh, here's a great script I wrote about Puss in Boots. Let's make that into a movie, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's probably much more likely that a studio exec was like, well, we have Puss in Boots. We haven't done a movie about that in a while. Absolutely. That's how that's how movies are made at the, at the high studio level now. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So let's make a movie about Puss in Boots. We'll get someone to write a script about mm-hmm. it and get somebody to, I don't know, design some villains, whatever. And, and all this stuff like happens concurrently, you know, mm-hmm. because it's just the way the business goes it's it's we can't wait for any one thing when we're trying to like meet deadlines of getting movies out right and and so then when it like it happens we're just like the, the it's it's like this lightning in a bottle it's it's just like oh man it's just <laughs> uh that's that's the stuff that i get excited about when it it, you think against all odds, how can this come together? And yet it does, right? Yeah, that is really cra- like like thinking about it that way. Like I thought you were going to talk about like the physical miracle of a movie getting made, right? Like just the lo- <laughs> like like the logistics of you know like like time and resources and manpower and uh, you know like all the technical stuff and and uh, actor availability and actor. Um, I guess stamina and 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 ability and and stuff like that. But you're talking about like like everybody's creative uh, ego, right? Is they're all moving and working with each other, and nobody like that we see or that we know of is crashing into each other and like putting a halt to this whole thing mm-hmm. because someone has this idea and someone has this idea. It's like no, it's like and and somehow rather than the 
I don't know, the compromise that you get when you have like all of those cooks in in the kitchen, right? Where it's like, well, you have so many creative forces at work that like it usually ends up nobody being happy because we have to go with a decision that <laughs> nobody wants, you know? Um, but like just, yeah, you're right. No, it is a miracle that like something so good came out of, of such a fast moving with many moving parts, like creative process. Well, that's the advantage of having that model where it is, it is studio created and not artist created because it will mm. get done. Right. I mean, it, like there is, there is someone who is saying like, we've spent all this time and money and it will get finished. And I want to say that to contrast um, an, our next animated film to talk about, which is Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. Right. Which, which I think is a lot like Elvis. I'm just going to say. <laughs> <laughs> right. But Guillermo del Toro, announced the that his next film would be Pinocchio in 2008. Yeah. So he has been working on this as his next film for 14 years and that had taken him a very long time, you know, it was a money problem. Um it was, you know, he had the vision and all of the ideas for it, but how do you get it finished? So right. he announced over and over and over again. I see another um, another announcement in 2011 that, okay, it's going to be uh, Del Toro and Gustafson, Mark Gustafson, who end up co-directing the movie with him. Again, in 2017, so continuously trying to get this created and not quite pulling it off until about 2017, when then now they're working on the film for five years continuously. Right. So, Ian, what did you think of um, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio? Uh, so it's it's sort of, um, I was thinking about it in terms of, I have uh, some friends who have this debate about um, music making, because uh, they're songwriters and they record music and things like that. And one of my friends, uh, he said that people don't have favorite songs. They have hmm. favorite parts of songs. And that kind of affected me a lot because it made me realize that when I'm watching movies, a lot of the way that I connect with the movie is that I think about what is my favorite part. Sort of, you know, when we were talking about Puss in Boots, you're like, oh, my favorite part is this panic attack. And uh, when I think of Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, I I think a lot about the engineering of storytelling. Mm -hmm. Um. And uh, like the, the artistry involved in the choreographing of a scene, but then what that means for the rest of it and how that fits into the bigger picture. And the, the, the image that sticks with me from Pinocchio is early on when um, Geppetto, uh, he kind of wakes up out of one of these drunken stupors mm -hmm. and he, he reaches for a bottle first thing when he gets up. Right. And he, he pulls the bottle to his mouth and nothing comes out. And I think the camera then kind of pans out and you see that the bottom has been broken off mm -hmm. of the, the bottle. Right. Mm -hmm. And I just I thought this was great because I feel like it it sets up a whole bunch of things about what kind of person he is in the morning. This is the first thing to do. Mm -hmm. And then what's going forward is basically just a result of like, well, your bottle was empty today. So now you're dealing with things in uh, in like a regular state. And just also, you know, uh, the metaphor of this of just like the bottom has been like taken out of all of this. Right. Right. So, right. Uh, I, I like the movie quite a bit because I think you you see all those sorts of uh, engineering decisions uh, in in getting the story across, right? Mm. Well, a lot of animation has to be really efficient because it's so expensive to do anything. And right. so CG animation is a little bit less efficient in general than 2D um, mm. because it's a little bit cheaper and you can mess around a little bit more. And then in stop motion, I mean, you can't, you, you know... 
you don't really want to have any wasted shots. So you you right. don't really want to do anything over twice. It's so expensive and time right. consuming. Every single little action, every single little twitch, every single little uh, finger wiggle is is uh, uh, planned <laughs> and calculated. <laughs> right. Yeah. A lot, a lot of time. Right. And this is this is uh, part of like the new model of stop motion in which we have a auteur director giving the name to it and directing it along with an animation director. So Tim Burton would do Corpse Bride, but he'd be working with another director who'd do the animation. And Tim Burton can do like the storyboards um, and come up with the shots and everything and then walk away for the week and check back in at the end of the week while Tim Burton is doing other things to um, to do because, uh, you know, he's not need on set you know to to do any of anything else the animators um uh, mike johnson in the case of course right had to do that or mark gustavson mm-hmm. in the case of uh, pinocchio right i will say whatever i thought mm-hmm. this was going to be i whatever it was i did not expect what i saw um i will say though uh, that it did kind of like have echoes of previous guillermo del toro uh things that i had seen i'm right. thinking like specifically of Pan's Labyrinth, where you have this fantastical element, but it's set in a backdrop of like this this horrible moment in history, right? right? Like this, I mean, this is World War II Italy mm-hmm. that's that's happening here in uh, in his Pinocchio, right. and we, even to the point where we have Mussolini show up. Yeah, um, that's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> He's a character in it. Mm-hmm. One of my students also pointed out that you know, Dottoro we associate with the love of monsters and this um, empathy with monsters. And this version of Pinocchio is a monster. Like when, when Geppetto yes. first sees him, Pinocchio has all these spindly arms. He looks like a xenomorph from Alien. And he sort of has to learn how to be more human. Um, and one of the other things that's different from this Pinocchio's character design to others is that he doesn't wear clothes. So he's constantly looks like wood. You, you can't yeah. sort of pretend like you can in the Disney version that it's just a boy who has wood appendages or something like that. You see him the entire time as a tree trunk and you see the grain in him. Right. He is as alien as... Uh, a, a Pinocchio can be right, and I think also you know, in, uh, you know, there's been four Pinocchios in the past few years. There's been Italian one, uh, a straight to DVD one with Pauly Shore, the Disney Plus version with Tom Hanks, and then this one. Um, this one is the only one of those so far that seems the most modern, even though it's set in the 40s. And part of that, I think, is the um, the gender of Pinocchio. So because he's not wearing clothes, he's also um, not gendered because he's just a, a wooden uh, person. So they still use the phrases as you would have to like he wants to become a real boy right a real boy yeah, right yeah. but there's nothing about him that is necessarily boyish except that um that's the phrase the real boy right. um and we don't see him uh hold on that's spoilers so i'll stop saying that um we so he's like so we have to continually say he's a real boy etc but there's nothing about him that um that is particularly boyish or or anything like that and he encounters some um some magical helpers who are genderless as well who are played right. by tilda swinton Yes, yes. Yes. When you said uh, four Pinocchios, I was thinking of like the Washington Times. Yeah, yeah. Right? <laughs> we, we give, yeah. We give Kamala Harris four Pinocchios on this. Yes. <laughs> uh, you have to watch them all now. That's just the way it works. <laughs> so, I, like, actually, Keenan, that is a really good point that you're that you're putting up here. Uh, like the number of Pinocchios. Mm-hmm. Like, am I wrong in in uh, uh, thinking that there is like a, a disproportionate amount of <laughs> like versions of Pinocchio? And I'm I'm not. Even yeah. talking about like like the, you know the recent like like 10 years i'm even talking about like all like back it like there was one with like jonathan taylor thomas wasn't there mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. there was there was that there was one there was one with paul rubens there one was, with was Benini. Benini. yeah like some like, scholars so what is it mm-hmm. uh, some scholars believe that there's only actually one story that exists and it's pinocchio <laughs> 
and it's Pinocchio. <laughs> a lot of our very favorite filmmakers can trace the Disney Pinocchio as their formative experience in movie making. Um, oh. So that that seems there seems to be something about that about filmmakers specifically being drawn to Pinocchio. Um, mm. Certainly, Steven Spielberg has referenced Pinocchio in at least two of his movies directly. Um, Mm. Close Encounters of the Third Kind uh, mm. directly addresses that. And then AI, artificial intelligence, directly addresses it. And then there's probably others that are, you know, E.T. is a Pinocchio story, I'm sure, right? Mm. Oh, yeah, there you go. Right. Yeah. Well, I was I, I guess I was joking a little bit, but now I'm kind of like thinking about it. I mean, like, you know, by comparing it to Elvis, I mean, you have this, uh, you know, this little boy mm-hmm. who, you know, is, is he wants to be this this one thing mm-hmm. more than anything else. Right. Um, and, he, and he goes on this this journey of, of self-discovery mm-hmm. and he he helps people and he hurts people along the way. Mm-hmm. Um so is it, Colonel Parker to Elvis? Is he the Stromboli or the Geppetto of this story? See, that was that was going to be my next uh, uh, question, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? Yeah, because be, there are there are times when he seems to be the Geppetto, uh-huh. but then uh, but then he is he is the Stromboli or well, Honest it, John and Gideon all wrapped up into one. Okay, that's another thing. I was going to say no Honest John or Gideon in uh, in this Guillermo, Guillermo del Toro one. That was the thing that I was waiting for. I really wanted to see that, and it, it wasn't there. <laughs> Well, instead we have a um, we have a character, what a, 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 a ringmaster who is a fox, and he has mm-hmm. a, a creation who is a monkey who does not speak. Um, yeah, who I think well, he's fox like, but he's, he's like, yeah, yeah, but he's like, like I, I I took that as the Stromboli character, but you're saying he's kind of like combined. I think into, so. I think he's the yeah. fox and the um, and the cat together. The talking uh, the fox and the talking fox and the cat. Yeah, and Stromboli. <laughs> sure. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, Elvis is this wonderful movie, I think. I think it's one of the best musical biopics there that has ever been. Um, I think it's a really strong year. So when we can talk about how great everything all uh, everything ever all at once is and how great the Banshees is and ha- how great Elvis is, like I think it's the best musical biopic since Amadeus. Because um, oh. I think most of them are, are try to have this like documentary type feel to it. Like, hey, this really happened and we're really right. here. And Elvis, uh, the movie, is like, no, we're not going to make it seem like we're really here. We're going to make it seem like how it really feels, right? Right. You have it was been yeah, in the presence of Elvis. That's a really good way to describe it, Keenan. Mm-hmm. That, like, because yeah, it, you're absolutely right. It was, it, it like, it they they were putting to the screen like the emotion and the hype and the and the like the 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 hypnotizing, mm-hmm. uh, um, just kind of like swirl of of. Uh, 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 of experience that that was um, like Elvis mania, I guess. Like, did they say Elvis? Mania? It was that Beatlemania. Did Beatlemania, that start that? Or? Right. Uh, okay. Well. Listomania, as we said before, like about Franz Liszt. That was the first one. Yeah. yeah. Why can't Why can't we say Elvis mania? I'm I'm pushing for that. It has to have some S sound, like Elvis somnia, which is like falling asleep to Elvis. Isn't quite the same. Oh no. Well, no, not being able to sleep because of Elvis. Oh yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I think I think actually Elvis had Elvis somnia. <laughs> Elvis for me was uh, too many notes. It was just. <laughs> <laughs> quite, quite a lot. <laughs> it's quite a lot. I, I don't know how you tell an Elvis story that is not, you know, too much. I don't know how you would do that mm. necessarily. I think, yeah, I think I, the very nature of Elvis, mm. right? So it really yeah. wasn't for you, Ian? No, no, it wasn't. I, I'm sorry. I, I couldn't get through it. I feel like an old man. I knew it was going to happen eventually. <laughs> but uh, I, I think the last time I felt that way was when I was watching Scott Pilgrim, which is mm-hmm. supposed to be aimed at me as somebody who plays video games. And I just thought there's so many things happening on the screen and I just can't 
enjoy it. So Right. When I talk about 21st century American filmmaking, I think it's very strange how I saw Moulin Rouge, Baz Luhrmann's masterpiece in 2001. And I said, well, all movies are going to end up like Moulin Rouge in the, in the future, right? All the movies are going to be like Moulin Rouge, incredibly fast, too much stuff happening in the soundtrack, too much stuff happening in the shots, incredible. Every scene is a thousand percent emotional um, and it didn't happen. And then about nine years later, Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, Edgar Wright's movie came out and I said, oh, finally, a movie that's like Moulin Rouge and and it's going to happen now. This is what all the movies are going to be like. And it just hasn't happened. So, so perhaps Baz Luhrmann has found that edge of where too much exists, you know? Um, but it hasn't happened for me yet. I mean, I think, I think in a really, really good Baz Luhrmann film or a good Edgar Wright movie, bring it all on. Um, and I think there are moments of that in everything, everywhere, all at once and, and Maverick. Right. Uh, but, but what, what for you, Ian, there's, they pull back from those. It's not like every sequence isn't like that in those movies. Oh, I, I, yeah, I I don't know what it is. I, I don't know if it's, uh, maybe there's something grounding about the way they do it in everything, everywhere, all at once. You know, the shot I'm thinking of in particular is, uh, just this, um, shot of Evelyn's face Mm -hmm. where the style is just constantly rotating through all these like different scenarios. Um, but you know, uh, Evelyn doesn't change at the middle. Like it's always Mm -hmm. still her, you know? Right. Um, so I, and there I know are, what it is. There Maybe are quiet it's... moments in everything ever all at once, and there are no quiet <laughs> moments in Elvis. Oh yeah. <laughs> That's true. Like you you get to take a break every once in a mm-hmm. while. So Right. Um and while we're, before we move on from Elvis and Baz Luhrmann, I just want to talk about um Catherine Martin, who is the producer and costume designer and production designer on the movie. Um, which is a strange yeah, it's it's, it's a very uncommon hat to to wield, right? Those three hats together. And so she she's been um Baz Luhrmann's main um uh, filmmaking partner and his wife through all of his major films. Um and I'm glad that like she's someone who has emerged and people now talk about them together as a piece, Baz Luhrmann and Catherine Martin. Um, because um, he always gives her credit for everything, but there's something about the way that we talk about the director and the husband as being at the forefront. And he's always said, Oh no, Catherine and I, Catherine and I, Catherine and I, she approves all my scripts. And, you know, she is the costume designer and the production designer of movies like Elvis and the great Gatsby and Moulin Rouge. And like, you know, that's not an easy feat. No, 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 no. Yeah, no, it, it, that, that is good that she's getting uh, more recognition. Now. Right. Yeah. And those two Lerman and Martin together got the um, produ- the production designers guild uh, lifetime achievement award this year together as a team. I, I really thought that uh, when you were saying like, uh, oh, there's this character in Pinocchio. Uh, I thought you were saying like, oh, this one is Stromboli to me. This one's Honest John to me. This one's the whale. Speaking of the whale. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we can talk about yes. we can talk about the whale. Yeah. Yeah, let's talk about the whale. So, well, wait, okay. My first question about the whale: Why isn't it? And this is okay, folks, listeners. Mm-hmm. This is this is going to reveal me as not as much of a film, um, a sophisticated film uh, uh, person Nerd. as my two Nerd. my two <laughs> guests here. No, not as much, right? Like right. I am, right. I am, I am a, I am an uncultured rube <laughs> in, ask, in asking this next question, which I am about to ask. Right. Why was the whale? Why is the whale not uh, uh, in running for for best picture? That is a very good question. Whenever you talk about something being snubbed, which we'll talk about for a we, rube. But no, no, that's no. a very good question. <laughs> Uh, yeah, because we have to talk about that. Like when there's a snub, well, you have to think about like, well, what would you have taken out of the best picture nominees? And the ten best picture nominees are all very deserving. I think the weakest of them is Avatar The Way of Water, for me personally, but some people really love that movie. 
that there's a there's a big constituency for that. My next weakest would be the Fablemans, which is a, a some movie. Some people love the Fablemans. Um, I, I am not that person, so you'd have to think about like, well, what should they take out of those ten? Um, mm. And at something that I haven't seen. <laughs> exactly. One of the ones, exactly. one of the ones that like, I haven't seen. One of those seen. must be must be worse than the whale. <laughs> the whale is a really strong movie. Um, however, there there is some pushback against the whale um, that some people have because there are some people, some activists in the fat community. Um, who say that this is the equivalent of like blackface for fat people, of having someone like uh, like Brendan Fraser, who is heavier than he used to be in the 90s, but I don't think he identifies as a fat person, right? He doesn't think of himself like, like I am this heavy person. Um, so, so to have him do that, like why can't we give – you know, a fat actor, the opportunity to do that. So I think that hurt its And are we, are we able to, is, is that the correct like term that we can use? Like, um, I mean, or? Roxane Gay describes herself as she, Roxane Gay, who had one of those influential pieces on the whale, describes herself as fat and talks about, you know, fat shaming and fat phobia and says that okay. she would have preferred that a fat actor, you know, was given the opportunity. Um, right. so just as long as we're using the, like, like, and folks like, yeah, let us know if we're, if we're yeah, overstepping. Um, I, I've started saying that because I think a lot of the people that I listen <clears> to the most like they they resent um and then again you know this is speaking for an entire community of people and that's not really fair but a lot of the loudest voices within this uh, community talk about like they resent you know people euphemizing uh euphem yeah is that the word like euphemistically mm. referring to the most other things what they really mean is fat it's mm. not that they are bigger or larger or more rotund or anything like that they're fat right um, right okay so so yeah so like to give the opportunity to someone that we we say, oh, like look at this acting because we know he's not fat. Like mm. so, t- for him to pretend to be fat is is acting right, as opposed to someone like oh, someone who is heavy, you know. And then the character that he's playing, Charlie, is like six hundred pounds, right? Right. So right. even if we had cast a three hundred pound actor, which exists, there are three hundred pound actors, right? Yeah, who exist yeah. and have training and could do it, etc. That would still mm-hmm. be stretching, right? That would still be acting and playing a six hundred pound person. Um, right, why right. does why does that not occur to us? Why do we need to take someone who we know is not fat at all and then turn them into um, uh, this transformative experience? Interesting. Yeah, like. That is a good question. Like, where do we draw the line about like what what actors can do when when other people uh, uh, exist? It, that's yeah. So I'm not necessarily on. I, I I probably would have included the whale in my top ten movies to vote for for the Oscars. Um, mm. I I don't know if people are necessarily persuaded by that argument. Um, you know, it's something to think about. Uh, Roxanne Gay and other activists saying this. Um, but I I think that part of uh, the part of the reason it might not have made the top ten this year. It's people's fears about um, uh, accidentally or, uh, you know, um, uh, stepping into something that they would regret later on. Hmm. Yeah. So I think that's that's a little bit of it. And that's like sort of controversy around the whale. Interesting. I personally, I, I loved that movie. That was, yeah. I think it was a, the, the first or the second one I saw. I, th- I think I saw everything everywhere all at once first. And then I saw the whale and I was like, God, like, I, am I just in for like a, an amazing lineup of movies? And, and then I saw Banshees and I was like, well, this is amazing, but now I feel like shit. Um, I think it is a particularly strong year uh, this year. So, I mean, I'm looking at the best picture nominees. I wouldn't put Avatar in my top 10. I don't think that's a very good movie. The Fablemans, I would not include in my top 10. I don't like that movie. Um, something like Top Gun Maverick, I understand completely why it's there. That is an exceptionally well-made film that doesn't jive with my own ideology. Um, but when I watched the movie, I'm like, there is no better made movie <laughs> this year than Top Gun Maverick. <laughs> it's just not one that I like myself for liking. 
Like I think that I think it is it's a wrongheaded movie politically, um, and it says it says dangerous things without meaning to. But man, it's fun. It, it is <laughs> so incredibly emotionally satisfying. Right. So mm-hmm. the besides those, the top the other seven are incredibly worthy. You know, films that I wouldn't have any functions about putting mm-hmm. in my top ten list, but the whale would not be um, uh, for a lot of people one of them. Interesting. What do you have yeah, you seen I, that, I, uh, Ian? I'm sorry. The whale. Did you see the whale? No, I haven't. I haven't had a okay. chance to see it. I've I've seen. Uh, I've seen, I think, every other Aronofsky. Uh, right. Just not this one. And uh, uh, yeah, I guess I, I should get around to it because he's another one who I think could make a very, who can make a very intense movie that mm-hmm. that overwhelms you, but not to the point where I want to leave. But I, I think they're, uh, like I think of um, Requiem for a Dream Requiem as being, dream with uh, Ellen uh, being a, I don't know if we talked about this before, the Gandhi movie. <laughs> one um, that you never want to see again. Yeah, just, that I mean, was yeah. You, you said you said somebody had a had a phrase for that. That was um, yeah, it's a Roger like, story. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. So um, it's like so. Uh, yeah, he said. What was it? What was it? Uh, a Gandhi movie is a movie that is good or maybe even great, but that you never have to see a second time. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I mean, what I what I would say is uh, that's uh, probably one of my flaws as far as like talking about these. Like, I can recommend to you the movies that I've seen that I liked. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I haven't seen all of them. I mean, I I've seen Avatar. I think it's difficult to find a person who hasn't seen Avatar, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I wasn't going to see it if it didn't get a best picture nomination because that's the type of person mm-hmm. I am. So it did. So I saw it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so I, I think, yeah, just uh, uh, like we had said, a whole lot of these discussions kind of uh, are also factor on well, which movie even grabs your attention enough to get you to go see it to recommend it to someone else, right? Right. So the so the whale Brendan Fraser is a possible winner of the Oscar. We uh, we're not quite sure. Colin Farrell, I could also see winning. And I think the smart money right now is on Austin Butler uh, for Elvis to win. Um, it sort of fits in more with the Oscars typical um, typical winner in the best actor category, which is a white person who existed. So that that is ah, typically, well, and so he he is the only character based on a real person and best actor, which helps that category a lot. And so I'm being facetious, but that is that is the um, the typical thing that happens in that in that category. Yes, I think they can they can always compare it to the real person as far as to like how well did they capture them. Whereas if it's a fictional person, mm. it's right. Yeah. So yeah. I have I have. Um, general i have i have four different um uh generalities here for the best actor the winner that's most frequently picked is a white man who actually existed usually a great white man like someone who has done something of um of importance like kings and generals and gladiators etc for mm. best actress it's uh the most common that i've discovered is um a glam young actress who is playing unglam um, and mm. we don't have one in this this year, but that would be someone like Natalie Portman in Black Swan, um, mm. um, uh, Halle Berry in Monsters Ball. Like, there, there's a reason why these things happen. Uh, this year, we don't have one of those, except unless you consider Anna de Armas as Norma Jean of Mordenson and Marilyn Monroe in Blonde, um, where she's playing a glam character, but we see her like really going through a lot of suffering in that in that role. So I think that the the two frontrunners for Best Actress are Kate Blanchett and Tar. That would be her third Oscar win. She would have. Um, as many best actress wins as Frances McDormand, and uh, so she'd be, you know, be only second to Catherine Hepburn or Michelle Yeoh. I'm not sure which of those women are going to win, but it's probably one of those two: Michelle Yeoh or Kate Blanchett. The one I saw, Michelle Yeoh. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <Best. laughs> I'm going to vote for the one I saw. Yeah. Best supporting actor is normally like the most often person who wins is an old man with a death scene, and this year we don't have any of those, so I don't know who to predict. Um, so. <laughs> 
Um, so Kihi Kwan is probably the front runner for everything everyone at once. He's won everything but the BAFTA, which went mm-hmm. to Barry Keoghan as Dominic in the Banshees of Inisherin. Interesting. Yes. Mm. Um, Best Supporting Actress is usually a sassy ethnic woman. And we Mm. only have, depending on who you're counting here, I would say (laughs) three of our options. No, wait. Four of our options are sassy ethnic women. That's Mm. Angela Bassett as the queen in Wakanda Forever. Hong mm. Chow is the best friend, Liz, the nurse, and the whale. Yeah, that would be mine. Yeah, oh, you I would think. vote for her. Oh, she's fantastic. Yeah, she's yeah, one yeah. of the best actors around, and she's been snubbed a couple of times. Yeah. Carrie- and not because it fits in with, with that No, that, no, no, that no, category, no, no, no. But this but is like- normally who wins. So so people like this would be like Whoopi Goldberg in, um, Whoopi Goldberg in Ghost, um, Mercedes McCambridge in The Fisher King, Rita Moreno in West Side Story, last year's winner, Ariana DeBose in West Side Story. Like, this is the most common one. Uh, but this will also include uh, Carrie Connan as the Irish sister in The Banshees of Inisherin, a sassy ethnic woman, and Stephanie Sue in Everything Everywhere All At Once when she is playing the bad guy. She is a sassy ethnic woman. So the only one who doesn't count there is Jamie Lee Curtis. So that's up for grabs. But I think that the the smart money on Best Supporting Actress would be Angela Bassett um, in Wakanda Forever. She is someone who is routinely looked over by the Academy. And if she wins for Black Panther, it will be partially because of this love for her and partially because of um, the strength of her performance. But I think it would be mostly because she didn't win for What's Love Got to Do With It, her only previous nomination, uh, where she plays Tina Mm -hmm. Turner, and that's one of the great performances. Interesting. Um, So yeah, uh, I guess, yeah, uh, Keenan, before we before we move on to um, uh, our Exorcist stuff, mm-hmm. like what about you? What was what was your your favorite? Uh, my favorite movie of the entire year was a movie called Babylon by Damien Chazelle, and that's a movie that's about the movie industry starting in the 1920s. It's a three hour long epic. It's kind of referencing uh, D.W. Griffith's Intolerance, um, but this is by the director Damien Chazelle, who became the youngest uh, Best Director winner uh, when he won for La La Land. Mm-hmm. So he he has made four of the best movies of the 21st century. Will Flash, La La Land, First Man, and now Babylon. And um, it wasn't until I saw this movie that I started really thinking about him as like this major person. I think his other movies are so different in so many ways because they're about all these different subject matters. But you start uh-huh. looking them together, and there, there really are. It's really clear like what the movie, what his movies are about, are about ambition and people trying to uh, simultaneously somehow like separate themselves from humanity by by achieving these great things, but also trying to be loved by humanity and and like how hmm. how incompatible those are like what do you, you want to be better than everybody else so that people will love you but of course that makes you resentful right people resent you for being better than them or you say you like have to sacrifice your relationship with your wife in order to work on your art so that people in the future love you it's like all these really dark ideas about like what it takes to be great so yeah. um so that did get a couple nominations best original score best costumes best production design it's the front runner for best score right now uh, justin Hurwitz, who has previously won for la la land but it might lose to the score for all quiet in the western front which is um mm. a very interesting like very modern score with a lot of tone and electronic type music for um a world war one movie okay oh wow Okay, so now, okay, well, now you guys are both just like adding to my list of movies that I need to see. What are you guys doing to like? I don't have to. I I'm doing this Exorcist thing. Yeah. I don't have time to watch all these other movies. You read like books and stuff. Yeah, right. Like that's the. If if I could somehow, God, you know what? If there was a way, if there was like some kind of like like podcast that I could listen to <laughs> instead of watching the movie that like describes each minute of the film. And then I could do that while I'm on my walks. I could do that while I'm doing the laundry. I could do that while I'm pretending to work at, at, in the office. <laughs> Our friend Noah Miller used to write screenplays while watching TV and listening to podcasts. So oh he God. was like, he said that at one point he was watching 
watching something on TV, playing a video game, uh, listening to a podcast and writing a screenplay, and then his nose started to bleed. So he decided he had to, <laughs> oh. he had to do fewer <laughs> things at once. Oh, God. Wait, was his nose uh, – wait, wait. Was, was the nose bleeding like – was it causation <laughs> or correlation? I'm just saying, he, because to be able to do a lot of those things, you got to be, I don't know. He took it as a sign. <laughs> Here's the real thing. Travel refreshed. Oh, my gosh. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, wow. Oh, my gosh. We covered a lot of ground here. Um, and now watch. Uh, the very next day, Oscars is going to come up, and uh, we're going to be... Uh, I don't know. Is our is our foot going to be in our mouths? Did something happen? <laughs> People of the future, did 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 somebody get up on stage and punch somebody else again? I don't know. I I, I really love the Oscars and I, I follow them a lot. Obviously, they're the quote unquote wrong all the time, and and the whole idea of like pitting movies against each other is silly. Um, but it is one of my specialties, and I I outguessed the Oscar nominations. I outpredicted the Variety this year, which is pretty pretty cool so um I'll, we'll see how i do for the winners <laughs> well i mean we haven't said it yet but we hope that everyone is enjoying um the oscar day because that's when that's when i'm planning to uh release this um and i hope you guys are all excited i hope you got your popcorn i hope you got your uh you know your nice comfy uh watching space and uh you know if you're if you're your gathered with friends and families <laughs> pizza in your backpack it's not an oscar party unless you have pizza in your backpack. right and i'll share my yeah. predictions on oscar morning with you all so that you can see how wrong i am um as well <laughs> <laughs> we'll put that we'll also put that in the listener group i think yeah um okay so keenan i was so excited when you suggested doing this episode because i had heard even before doing research for our show that there was like a bit of drama mm-hmm. surrounding our movie the exorcist and the 1974 academy awards right there's always drama that's part of the fun of it but because the exorcist stands in for this whole like community of people i think that people are particularly offended when the exorcist did not sweep the entire oscar categories that, that it was nominated mm. for nominated for 10 oscars which is a lot yeah winner 10. 10 oscars yeah winner of two which is also a lot uh but there's a lot of people in the exorcist community who do not think that was enough yeah in- including blatty like as we'll as yes. we'll uh, happen to see that <laughs> i didn't see it but i but i read oh, about yeah. it um he like he just happy. like went on this whole thing yeah happy, wow yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Um, but yeah, it, like now, correct me if I'm wrong, but even before all this drama, The Exorcist sort of had the odds stacked against it right out of the gate because of its um, categorization as a horror film, which up to this point, and I guess even still, is not really considered uh, worthy of consideration. So that's always tricky, right? Because when we're talking about the Oscars, we're talking about a couple thousand people. Right. Hmm. So you might be able to go up to individually them and and say, hey, would a horror movie be worthy of best picture? And they would say, of course. Right. But it seems to be there seems to be a record uh, because we have, you know, 95 uh, different uh, times when they've been able to vote for movies. And um, the times when they've produced a best picture nominee that is a horror movie is, depending on how you're counting, five or six times in the history of, uh, of the Academy Awards. And The right. Exorcist is the first one. This is the very first horror movie that was nominated for Best Picture. Um, certainly the first time you'd had a horror movie that was uh, really considered one of the front runners for the Oscars. Right. And like to that point, The Exorcist was just so big and so influential that like you couldn't ignore it. Like, yeah, maybe we have this precedent about like horror, um, you know, not being considered. But like The Exorcist and its impact sort of – like broke the rules, broke the game. I mean, I mean, here you have the Academy and they're sitting in their, I don't know, like office headquarters <laughs> lair. I, I, like, I, I don't, I don't know. 
I don't know how they do these things or what. But again, yeah, that's my point. Yeah, so you imagine them and they're sitting around and they're saying, "We can't let this happen," right? Or we, right, right. right. Somebody, somebody stands up and they and they and they slam their fist on the table, right? right? You know, but like, like, or 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 they're just like like sitting around, uh, you know, a big table, um, you know, like like gentlemen, which of these fine films of nineteen seventy three should be nominated for the awards? And and like right outside. They look out the office window and they can probably see and hear crowds that are still right. (laughs) Smithers, what are they saying? (laughs) Are they saying Exorcist? (laughs) No, they're saying next films. Are are you saying Exorcist or next film? I was saying next film, (laughs) sis. Let's get them, guys. <laughs> but yeah, but I mean, like these crowds are just like they're they're still coming, right. they're still flocking, they're 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 lining up to see what is quickly being dubbed the scariest movie mm-hmm. of all time. Like like seriously, how can you talk about any other movie in 1973? The the only reason I know other 1973 movies is because they competed against The Exorcist at the Oscars. Right. Like maybe that says more about me um, that I don't know. Again, uncultured rube that I am. So- um, um, that I don't know other 1973 movies. Well, again, so the Academy is thousands of people. So there are not mm. there are not meetings in boardrooms where people m- trade votes and say, I'm going to vote for this, so you don't vote for that or anything like that. So so that just doesn't happen the way that you would say it. All the, all the bias against the Oscars has to be an unconscious bias because, again, you poll people and, and you ask them and they'll say, sure, absolutely. And people talk about this, um, this unfair um, disadvantage that certain genres have, and that is true. I mean, so the Western is one of the most popular genres. And we have mm-hmm. two uh, Westerns that have won Best Picture, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so, so there are these unconscious biases, I would say. But now I would posit that 10 Oscar nominations is proof that it is it was not biased against Zara because that's a lot of Oscar nominations, right? right? That is a ton. It is a ton yeah. of them. So the, the nominations that the extras got, Best Picture, producer William Peeler Blatty. Best Director for Billy Friedkin, Best Actress Ellen Burson, Best Supporting Actor Jason Miller, Best Supporting Actress Linda Blair, Best Adapted Screenplay William Peter Blatty, Best Art Direction to the Production Designer Bill Malley and the Set Decorator Jerry Wunderlicht, Best Cinematography Owen Roisman, Best Film Editing for its four editors Jordan Leondopoulos, Bud Smith, Evan A. Lotman, and Norman Gay, and Best Sound for Robert Newton and Chris Newman. So not only is it very well represented. It's in a lot of different categories. So directors, because yeah. each each branch has to nominate their own. So directors liked it. Actors liked it. Mm-hmm. Writers liked it. Um, sound designers liked it. So it's well represented across a bunch of different branches. Yeah. Now, so you had said that this was the first horror movie to receive a Best Picture nomination. Um, had horror movies received other Oscar nominations besides Best Picture before this? Right. So the horror movies that you that we would associate with the beginning of like the the modern monster movies, the universal movies, they were not Oscar favorites. They certainly were looked at differently. The Academy Awards back then were much more controlled. It was a little bit more like you described them now of like backroom deals and that sort of thing. Hmm. There was a there was a rule at the beginning where one studio couldn't win in the same category two years in a row. So like it was oh. it was that controlled. Um so that those movies are partly, you know, 
King Kong and Dracula, Frankenstein. Those movies were all sort of overlooked for that. Um, but in the 1960s, you did have a couple horror movies with quite a few Oscar nominations, like uh, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane and its spiritual successor, Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte. Those could have potentially gotten the Best Picture nomination, but instead they got a lot of nominations, including acting nominations. Um, I think recently uh, before um, before The Exorcist, Rosemary's Baby would have been a good candidate for a Best Picture nomination. Because it won an ah, okay. Oscar for Best Supporting Actress and got an Oscar nomination for Best Screenplay. And so it was, you know, taken pretty seriously, but just didn't quite make the cut. Interesting. Okay. Um, and yeah, so then, like, not only is Exorcist invited to the party, but, like, it manages to snag not one, not two, but like you said, ten Oscar nominations, right. including Best Picture, right? Including the big so one. So this is the first uh, horror film nominated for Best Picture. I, I caught myself in a uh, – I, I missed one when we were counting with Andy Nelson in our Halloween episode, but – this would include Jaws later on. Would be one, right? right. Um, uh, oh, I'm going to try to do it without notes to try to prove how good I am in this, and I might forget a movie again. <laughs> the Silence of the Lambs, which wins Best Picture. Yes. The Sixth Sense, Black Swan, and Get Out. That's the oh, that's the only handful of them that there have been. So, how many Oscar nominations, Lester and Ian, does a film need to get? Before we say like that the Academy was against it and like like, you know, uh, screwing it over or or snubbing it, you know, I mean, like 10. You get, <laughs> you get, you get, <laughs> I'm just no, 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 I, that, that wasn't an answer to your question or maybe I maybe it was. But um, but like like, no, I was I was just like marveling at that number, like like Count Von Count. I was looking at that number and. And just and it's like the the roundness and the oddness. Well, no, I guess the evenness, evenness of that number. Yeah. Yes, but like like it's like thinking of that, like like ten, like mm-hmm. ten different categories you are mentioned in as like the best of something, and you you end up getting two, right? Like out of ten, that's that's. 20 that's 20 percent 20 percent i would that, fail one of my students if they got two out of ten on a test so the okay so then the amount of wins that it got is a sign that potentially there was something amiss here and there were stubs potentially for you mm, i i would think so well okay so uh, again like uh, a question from a person who's not as educated <laughs> um like nominations just by themselves are are like a, a, a big deal. I don't got right? no Oscar like, nominations. You got any Oscar nominations? No, I got, right. I got so none. I think one is I got, pretty good, right? I got <laughs> half of 10, which if we're counting it as a one and a zero, I got zero, right? I know that that's that's new math right there. Yeah, so I would consider, but okay, so maybe there was potentially, as some people have argued, um, a turning against the exorcist between nomination times and voting time. Hmm. Now, we have some evidence of this, which I'd like to present. So are you, wait, 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 are you saying, are you saying that people were like, like people all across the board, people in sound, people in cinematography, people in art design, people in, uh, you know, like the Acting world and the, and the directing world were like, hey, you know what was a really good good film here is as The Exorcist, uh-huh. and then like like overnight they were like, wait a second, you know what movie well, I really that's don't what like. we would have to agree if we're saying two isn't enough, but and there is a little bit of evidence of that that some of the people can point to. What were you going to say, Ian? I was going to say I feel like a lot of times uh, it's this case where if, if there's a huge groundswell against uh, or for mm-hmm. a movie, everybody assumes everyone else is voting for it, and right. so they feel like. They could put their vote somewhere else, and uh, that's mm-hmm. that's caused all kinds of problems in all kind of voting matters, actually. <laughs> right. 
Yeah, there mm. there are again there are thousands of people voting and we don't get the opportunity to even poll them because they're a secret organization, right? That's a it's a uh-huh. it's a secret ballot and they don't have their you don't have the emails to the most glamorous and and powerful people in Hollywood to ask them where they voted for, etc. So right. we have to sort of find other evidence. And so um, what uh, William Peter Blatty said after the night of the Oscars, he said it was a disgrace. We should have won everything in every category that we were nominated for. It is uh, head and shoulders, the finest film made this year and in many other years. So that's the producer, William Peter Blatty, saying that mm-hmm. that his win for best adapted screenplay and the sound designer's win for best sound wasn't enough and that it should have won. And this is after he won, yes. right? Like this, like he, like I, I just imagine him holding his <laughs> This is this is bullshit. So he he says, yeah, this is this is a disgrace that it was but hands uh, head above. Wait, what's the word? Hands above knees, heads above elbows, (laughs) head and shoulders, knees and bellies above butts. (laughs) The best film of the year, right? Asses to elbows, folks. Asses. The best that it was the disgrace. So, what evidence do we have of that that people turned against it? Well, um, we have in uh, Ellen Burstyn's uh, memoir, which is called "Lessons in Becoming Myself," that legendary director George Cukor launched a smear campaign against The Exorcist, personally writing letters to members of the Academy not to vote for the film in any capacity. Ooh, so, what? Cukor denied this. Cukor. Um, had directed a thriller, at least, called Gaslight, not quite a horror film. Uh, He's most famous for romantic comedies like The Philadelphia Story. He had won an Oscar relatively recent for My Fair Lady. Um, He was a really big deal, and he was also one of the directors on The Wizard of Oz and one of the directors on Gone to the Wind, which had multiple directors. Hmm. So George Hooker was a big deal. He had a lot of cachet within the industry. So Ellen Burstyn says, and I've had trouble verifying this anywhere, but, you know, I'm going to take her word for it, that that she says Mm -hmm. George Luger was launching a campaign telling people specifically not to vote for the exorcist in any category wow so we've both looked at this movie a lot and we've been praising ellen burston specifically <clears throat> i think out of all the actors who we all like we've been spending a lot of time on ellen burston yes the front runners uh-huh. for best actress were ellen burston for the exorcist and barbara streisand for the way we were Hmm. Barbara Streisand had already won an Oscar for Funny Girl uh, within five years. Um, but The Way We Were was a much more popular film, and it was a different turn for Streisand. It was much more dramatic. So hmm. um, Ellen Burstyn posits that um, that George Cukor's smear campaign opened up a path for the dark horse candidate Glenda Jackson, who won, um, hmm. to win for her movie called A Touch of Class. So, you know... People who talk about Oscar snubs, I would at least encourage you to see the movies that won, you know, because sometimes they are, you'll watch them and go, oh, wow, I get that. Because when I was a kid, I saw Fargo. It changed mm-hmm. my life. And I was like, I love movies now. Fargo is it. Fargo mm-hmm. Fargo lost to The English Patient. And I turned on The English Patient. I was like, oh, that's an excellent film. <laughs> right. Yeah. So it's not really like a matter of snubs. Like I would have voted for Fargo, but The English Patient is like a, a fantastic film. Um, I think yeah. if you do that with a touch of class, you'll find that. Um, Glenda Jackson is one of the best actors around, but I don't think it's I don't think it's in the same category as um as Ellen Burstyn and The Exorcist. Yeah, but yeah, Glenda yeah. Jackson is a fantastic actor. She'd already won an Oscar, um, so this was her mm-hmm. second one. So I think that there's something to be said for Ellen Burstyn being snubbed in in the best actress category. I think that's a fair one to talk about. Oh wow! Now, okay, oh, go on. You have a question mm. for me? Well, I, I was I was just going to say mm, gaslight because that's that's kind of appropriate. Well, gaslight like, that is it's like you don't you don't like The Exorcist. You, <laughs> you you didn't nominate it. No, it's like 
It's a terrible movie and you hate it and you're not going to vote in any capacity for it. <laughs> George Cougar's Gaslight is a movie that's so successful that it um, it has become so influential it's ruined itself. It's spoiled itself because that's the solution to the hmm. mystery is that she's being gaslit. Oh. Yeah, like that term, that term comes from the movie Gaslight. Right, yeah. right, right. Much like uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Right, Or the movie um, Catfish. You can't watch that anymore because now we have the term catfish, which is the solution to the mystery of the movie Catfish. <gasps> oh. Yeah. And then, and then um, episode five, also known as Luke, I am your father. <laughs> <That's>, no. <laughs> so I think that, that that might be a legitimate question. The, another tough one to think about is the campaign for best supporting actress. All right. So we like Linda Blair a lot, you and I, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. So, oh, okay. Oh, th- this was actually the next thing on my notes. I'm yeah. glad we're talking about this. Okay. Yeah. So, according to a lot of people, including the Wondery podcast Inside the Exorcist, correct. Everybody, check that out. It's a really it's good. a really good one. Um, they they do admit that they have dramatized the history of the Exorcist. Right. It's a it's a fiction story. So the Inside the Exorcist podcast from Wondery uh, uh, repeats a lot of the suppositions that people have that I don't know we can prove. Um, The idea that um, the controversy surrounding who played Reggie McNeil influences the vote. Um, I think this is the kind of thing that, again, there's not quite a smoking gun. It, it, It feels right that Linda Blair is nominated for Best Supporting Actress. She wins the Golden Globe, which at the time was the only precursor award to the Oscars, whereas now we have... The British Academy Awards and the SAG Awards and the Golden Globes and the AFI Awards and the National Board of Review, etc. So she had won the Golden Globe for playing Reagan McNeil. And so sometime in between then, when she was the frontrunner and time of the Oscars, we started having more murmurs, which is why it's like, I can't find smoking gun news articles from my standpoint here, where people are saying, like, who really played her? Like, was she really played in the tougher parts by Eileen Dietz? Was she played by Mercedes McCambridge as the voice? Because we had this controversy. Uh, because at first Mercedes McCambridge was not given credit. Eileen Dietz was never given credit um, in the movie. And then Mercedes McCambridge uh, went through arbitration with the Screen Actors Guild and got her credit on the movie. Right. 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 But then like, and correct me mm-hmm. if I'm wrong, like even when she did get her credit, mm-hmm. it was uh, a little bit later and it it didn't specify like what she actually right. did at first. Right. right. Like it just said like, and Mercedes McCambridge. Mm-hmm. Right. And that was it. Like, so, yeah. Um, again, so a lot of people have pointed to that controversy about that as being the thing that would sink Linda Blair. Uh, and mm. her chances, it, that's a lot harder to prove, I would say. Um, now, like, now, why would that, uh, like, specifically sink her and not Friedkin? Would, mm-hmm. did, like, did they think that she – did they think specifically that Linda Blair was lying or, like, like – like to me, like like as somebody who like like first came to this this story, we, like it just seems like oh this is this is a a a drop of the ball by Friedkin. Like he didn't he didn't specify he didn't like put it out there. Like like why are we why are we so mad at Linda Blair? Right, for I don't think that we have a good answer to that. I think that you're right. Okay, I think that the that the kind the story sort of goes, again, these are suppositions, that, oh, I was really taken by this performance, and it turns out that some untold amount of this performance is not given by this actor that I was told is the person doing it. Um, there was a little bit of a similar situation to a lesser extent when the 
dancing double for Natalie Portman and Black Swan started saying, uh-huh. hey, I'm the one who's doing her dances. Um, like, and, and there was kind of a stink. And I think that once those stories were out, the Academy voters were like, well, I'm not voting for her because of her dances. So, I, that, you know, and she still won the Oscar, you know. Um, right, right. So I don't know how much like having Linda Blair as a stunt double or, you know, body double. I don't know how much that really would impact voters to move away from her. Um, but perhaps the voice issue with Mercedes McCambridge, who was a very well-known person, she was already right. an Academy Award winner. Um, that mm-hmm. one might be a little bit more serious. But again, mm, I can, I can, yeah. We don't have art. We don't have interviews with anybody saying that that changed their vote. Right. We uh, like and and like in our research, like I mean, like the best I could come up with is you know, in addition to uh, uh, Wondery's um, Wondery's wonderful kind of like account of right. it, um, is. Um, I guess like all we have to go on is what Friedkin has mm-hmm. said and what what Mercedes McCambridge right. has said, and they don't say the same thing. Um, right. uh, Friedkin, according to Friedkin, Mercedes McCambridge, the voice of the demon, specifically asked not to be credited at first. Am I like am I am I correct in remembering yeah, this? I don't believe that for um, a second. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, but, yeah, see, okay. But yes, that's what Friedkin claims. Yes. That's exactly what I was going to ask. I was like how much do we believe like like Mercedes McCambridge, the Mercedes McCambridge, right? Like of, you know, like like this this storied actress, Who, actor. Uh, Orson um, Welles called the greatest radio actor of all time. Yeah. Said to Billy mm-hmm. Friedkin who like at the time was like like not you know, Exorcist right. Billy Friedkin was maybe just, you know, um, French Connection Billy Friedkin. It's like, you know what? I don't want to have any credit for this. You just you just give this all to to little old little Linda Blair there and and don't even mention my name. <laughs> and like this this is an Ian, this is an account. Right. This is an account by by Friedkin himself sure. <laughs> uh, say, saying this. And and in this story, in this story, Friedkin steps up and he's like uh, but but Mrs. McCambridge, right, you you have to be credited. She, I I won't stand for anything right, else. Right, you know, right. if, if like, he recalls, and and she's like, N-. if if he recalls correctly, she said, uh, I I don't want to be nominated. And have you been working out? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and he's like, please please call me Big Billy. Um, and and you know, and then he rode off in, in into the sunset. Um, but no, like it just as. Soon as I heard that story by by William Friedkin, I was like, I do not believe this for one fucking second. Like like that she that she asked not to be credited, and you like pushed it on her, and she insisted. Right. Ah, yeah. Um. So, but then okay, like like, but then all the heats on Linda mm-hmm. after this, like that that just that like confuses me to no to right. no end. That like as as if as if Billy Friedkin and Linda Blair were like. In that in that meeting room, well, you right. know, now the academy's not in there anymore. It's being you know, it's being rented out by 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 Billy Freakin and Linda right. Blair, both of them in in like gangstery type suits, and they're just like, all right, here's what we're gonna do. See, we're not gonna credit Eileen Dietz, and we're not gonna credit uh, Mercedes McCambridge, mm-hmm. and and you you gonna you're gonna be a big star. You're gonna come away from this, you know, uh, you know, smelling like roses, right? right? I, like, and then they do a musical, movie <laughs> and, you know, whatever. Um, but yeah, like like as as if that were the idea that 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 Linda Blair was somehow in on it. Like, right. I don't know. So, so this, this is a little bit messy. So, you know, again, we don't have, unlike, um, with George Cukor saying this, which Ellen Burstyn at least is going on the record saying, this is a major influential person saying this. Uh, I have not seen anybody in the history of, of this, which doesn't mean that it doesn't exist, but I have not seen it after trying to find it, an Academy voter saying that they were 
uh, turned off by this, that they started questioning their vote um, of anything negative about Linda Blair and saying, like, this is a trick performance, etc. Um, so the best supporting actress that year goes to Tatum O'Neill, who is also a child actor. At the time, she is the youngest um, uh, Academy Award winner. She was 10 years old, where Linda Blair would have been 13 years old if she had won. So right, the right. two the two front runners would be Linda Blair, the Exorcist, Tatum O'Neill for Paper Moon, with a possible mm-hmm. spoiler for Sylvia Sidney in this movie called Summer Wishes Winter Dreams, where she's the the older mother mm-hmm. of Joanne Woodward who has to deal with her issues, and she was a beloved actor from the '30s who then um, later on in life Tim Burton was using her in, in movies like Mars Attacks and in uh, Beetlejuice, where she's the um, right, the right. secretary at the end of the world in Beetlejuice, right. Yes, yes. So mm-hmm. so she potentially could have been a potential spoiler. Um, but, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know. So there, there, this might be something where it's like, oh, this, these two little girls are so great. There's kind of a question about how much acting Linda Blair's doing, but Tatum O'Neill clearly is doing all of her acting. And she's even mm-hmm. younger, and it's much easier. Uh, so potentially that mm-hmm. that might have some weight, but I, don't ha- I haven't been able to find any real evidence for it. It's a story that's repeated on a lot of exorcist blogs, a lot of horror blogs, a lot of Oscars blogs talking about Academy bias, but, but we don't quite have a smoking gun. Interesting. Do you think, um, that it, it's, it could possibly also be a case of the drama created by the drama, just Uh kind of like turning people off, like, 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 Oh no, we discovered this thing. And now this is going to, this is going to, you know, steal the Oscars away from Mm -hmm. us. And just like, like Billy Friedkin is just like in the middle of the street and he's, he's just like weeping and he's, Mm -hmm. you know, and and he's, and he's, uh, you know, just creating a scene and people are like, I wasn't even thinking. (laughs) I don't, I I don't know if I want to like, you know, like that's, and that's the, that's the memory that they, they, you know, uh, that's the first thing they think of when, you know, when voting time comes is like, oh yeah, Billy Freakin in the street being like, you ruined us, Mercedes McCambridge. You ruined us, Eileen Dietz. Yeah, again, Friedkin hasn't really been vocal about his being, feeling snubbed at the Oscars. He seems to understand what this is. He's been there before with the French Connection. Right. Blatty is the one who seems to take it really hard. This is his first time up for the Oscars uh, and are being really attached to any film that would even be nominated. It's like a shot in the dark, his most um, uh, prestigious film before. That's a silly Peter Sellers movie. That's not getting, right. getting nominated for anything, right? Um, so it's really Blatty who seems. And then, you know, again, horror fans who are right. used to their favorite movie of the year being, I don't know, let's say Nightmare on Elm Street, right? Which um, gets gets snubbed for sure, even for things like makeup and special effects, you know. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I think they're used to that. So they're they're trying to find, you know, okay, what's the most prestigious horror movie? The Exorcist, and mm-hmm. then they're trying to find, or at least it like is is helpful in their case that the Academy is biasing its horror films because mm. it is. I mean that that certainly seems to be the case there, but I don't right. know if I buy it with The Exorcist specifically. Interesting, interesting. I mean, like up until this point, I would have, I would have thought so. Like just like again, I'm I'm looking at this number ten. <laughs> <laughs> 10 nominations and it's fine like it, it just it it also it also like like strikes me um as as very interesting that like blatty blatty being the the, the i guess i guess the you know the the one who's like the most hot under the collar mm-hmm. after after winning an oscar for right. like th- for like that's his oscar like that, that's the thing that he like like contributed to right like right. best adapted screen like like that was his right yeah, adapting his horror novel into a horror screenplay yeah like that's a, that's a big deal like that that is a huge a huge deal right so like it's it's not like like um you know Exorcist got um best sound and best makeup it did get best sound but like 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 <laughs> other things other things that Blatty had nothing to do with and then Blatty comes up and it's like ah it should also be best adapted screenplay like right. he got best of he got his thing. 
Right. Right. I mean, so that, in that, in some ways, so Friedkin had had supported Blatty and said, you know, he was being he was rooting for the home team, right? He wanted yeah. all of us to win, and and for to some extent, he could sort of support that, right? Yes. Right. Yeah. Um, like, I mm. mean, he Blatty would have been advocating for himself to win Best Picture, you know, because he was the producer as well. Oh well, yeah. So you know, he would have gotten another out, but but no, I think I think it's it's kind of endearing for him to say like you know everybody should have won. You know, I, I understand that part of it. If I could look at at just a couple more of these categories, um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Jason Miller, Best Supporting Actor. Yeah. Um, Jason Miller is very strong in this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, he loses to John Houseman of the Paper Chase, which is a beloved performance that mm-hmm. is um, very often parodied. So he's the he's the hard assed uh, um, Ivy League professor who gives the um, the young aspiring uh, college students a really hard time, and mm-hmm. he, he teaches them to love the uh, the law. You know, okay. um, and John Houseman was a beloved uh, person even before he got into acting because he was a producer for Orson Welles and um, in the early days. So he was a, a really big deal. Um, I don't. Do you know John Houseman? Uh, no. Oh, okay. So he 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 was like um, he was a beloved stage actor and a stage producer, um, and a, you know a producer on on Orson Welles's early stuff. So. Oh. Again, best supporting actor is usually um, is often voted for for like an older actor, like their career, um, their career achievement award. Mm, usually, okay. I say old man with a death scene. He doesn't die in the paper chase, but he's he's an old man, very dignified. He got his first Oscar nomination. Gotcha. Another thing is that Jack Jason Miller is not the supporting actor. Um, Max von Sydow is right. Like Jason Miller probably should have gotten a best actor nomination. True. So it's category fraud, which sometimes pays off and sometimes doesn't. So when people, when the, the filmmakers campaign for um, an actor to be either lead or supporting, you know, they try to, they try to feel it out, like what they have the best shot at. I think yeah. they may, I think they messed up here. Yeah. That's a, that, that's actually a very good point. Like, mm-hmm. like when I was reading, it was like, okay, yeah, yeah. Jason Miller, best supporting actor. Like, and then it was like, wait, who is he supporting? I was like, right. oh, he's supporting Ellen Burstyn, but wait right. a minute. Like, right. Like who's, yeah. Who's, who's uh, uh, a, a male actor in this thing that, that has more. Yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't, you know, it could be, it could be that she's the lead, but they're co-leads. I mean, that's, that's totally what's happening. In this right. Movie, right. Right. I mean, you were talking before about like how this, this movie has a really long act one and it's right. specifically because we have to give our two main uh, people like this, uh, the, um, uh, like like an arc in, right. into act two, right? They each have their introductions, right? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, Jason Miller is a new actor. I think there's some feeling like, oh, he'll have the next chance to do this. Like, he'll get other parts because of this. Hmm. He could play Rocky. He could play yeah. One for the Cuckoo's Nest. You sure. Know? Like, those those jobs will come up for him mm-hmm. as opposed to what's normally best supporting actor for is like someone who has had an established career and we're rewarding them. So like Jack Palance in City um, uh, City Slickers or uh, right. yeah. uh, things like that. Yeah. That, okay, they've had their, or Martin Landau in Ed Wood. That's, that's who Best Supporting Actor is for. Yeah. Um, so maybe if they had moved into Best Actor, he would have competed a little bit better against Jack Lemmon and Save the Tiger, which is um, a fine performance, but certainly not as catching as some of Jack Lemmon's other movies, and Jack Lemmon already won an Oscar. So mm. maybe if there was a, a better campaign from the, the uh, studio, maybe Jason Miller would have had a chance. But yeah, yeah. Yeah, but he was up and coming, and they thought, oh, he was going to have more of a career, but he didn't, actually. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he yeah, he got a... Hollywood uh, relatively quick, didn't he? Um, right. Yeah, he uh, like and and he was predominantly a writer uh, in any mm-hmm. case. Um, doing that, doing that uh, uh, play that uh, one. Um, that championship season. That championship season, yeah, yeah. Right. So one nice thing about the Oscar ceremony is that Jason Miller gets to present the Oscar for Best Adapted Screenplay yes. to William Peter Blatty mm-hmm, and get to mm-hmm. applaud for him very heartily, which is really nice to see him. Doing yeah. That. Yeah. Um, but uh, you mentioned makeup for an Oscar, right? Right. For Dick Smith, that category did not exist. 
So if that category had been created earlier, it got created in the 1980s. Mm -hmm. Probably Dick Smith would have won an Oscar and that would have been three Oscars. That would have been three (laughs) Oscars and and 11 nominations. (laughs) Right, exactly. (laughs) That might have happened. There Mm -hmm. was no um, best special effects Oscar category at this time. I'm not sure why. There was one in the 1930s and 40s and 50s. So at some point they had had got rid of that um, category and they brought it back later on the 80s. (gasps) Oh, do you think that's that's, that's another like delicious little tidbit that that um, um, you know, people who are salty about uh, exercises say, like, oh, they, they specifically took that out <laughs> in 1974 because they knew that, that the exorcist would, would, would win yeah, that. probably. I mean, so that makes sense. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. So, But uh, against the Academy, the Academy can create a special achievement award anytime it wants to. Mm, okay. So they had done that for the makeup for Planet of the Apes, for instance, and they mm-hmm. didn't do that here. No. Um, so they could have done that, but they chose not to. Who knows yeah. why? But if there were a makeup category and a special effects category, probably the extras would have won those mm-hmm. two. Mm-hmm. Um, another candidate it could have won was cinematography. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So we haven't talked much about Owen Reisman, the cinematographer. We've been sort of saving that for some of the more famous shots, I believe. Right, yes. Um, and so he is nominated and loses to Sven Nikvist, uh for Ingmar Bergman's Cries and Whispers. Mm. That is a very influential piece of cinematography. That would be hard to make a case for um, for that being a snub if you actually see Cries and Whispers. That's one mm-hmm. of the most influential pieces of cinematography that we've ever had. Yeah. And then for director, best picture, The Exorcist lost to The Sting, which was a very popular film. Mm-hmm. Um, have you seen this thing? I have not. No. Ian, did you see this thing? Uh, no, I, but it's, I, I recall like a bad magazine parody cover <laughs> of this thing. So I think that it's like a very, some very famous imagery from it. Right. Yeah. Mm. It's a really good movie. So, I mean, I think if you were to watch the exorcist and then watch cries and whispers, which was another front runner for best picture and the sting, you'd be like, okay, I get why these are the three front runners for best picture that year. Mm. Um, the sting is a, is a comedy, but it is a period piece. It's about the great depression. It is incredibly well done. The production design, the editing, um, the music, all of it's really wonderful. And that is a heist movie um, with uh, like a con artist movie with uh, um, Paul Newman and Robert Redford. Very, mm. very charming movie. Very, very, very good. Mm. And that Best Picture win gives Julia Phillips the first Oscar win for a woman in Best Picture. Oh. So, you know, what are you going to do? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you see all five of them and still think The Exorcist should have won, I would agree with you. I would have mm. voted for The Exorcist for Best Picture. But I don't know if, if snub is quite the same word for it. Mm. Um, the other two nominees are Touch of Class, the Glenda Jackson rom-com that has mostly been forgotten in the scope of film history. Mm. And then uh, George Lucas's American Graffiti, which yeah. is an excellent, excellent film as well. Right, right. But the, actually, yeah, to your point, Keenan, that's, I mean, that's the ultimate, um, oh my gosh, I sound, I sound like that coach who's talking to the little league, uh, team that lost. And it's like, but we're, we're winners in here. Um, <laughs> but no, like, like, but no, you, you raise a very good point, uh, Keenan, because like I had said, um, and I'm, I, I, I don't think I'm alone in, in making this statement, but like of all of those movies that you have named, I think, mm-hmm. you know, the average kind of like not, you know, non-film aficionado might know The Exorcist, but they might right. not know, you know, Paper Moon or The Sting mm-hmm. or, you know, those 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 other films. I mean, like, so in the, you know, in the long, what is the, you know, at the end of the day, in mm-hmm. the long haul and the long road. <laughs> and the, the long, long elbows. And the long, long <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but no, no, it's like, like, you know, 
after after the smoke has cleared and the dust has settled, right? What what movie is standing huh, head and shoulders, right? You know, above, <laughs> uh, above everything else, right? Like head the head is all the way around. No, um, <laughs> but like no, like everybody remembers the. I mean, for right. for fuck's sake, we're making a, a minute by minute uh, podcast about this thing, right? Like I th- I think oh, Exorcist well, you is and doing I pretty could do good. A cries and whispers minute by minute for sure. If oh, you ever see goodness. that, Ingmar Bergman. <laughs> yeah, we could definitely do one of those. Yeah, one of us is cries and one of us is whispers <laughs> and that's how we do one of us just does the whole podcast like this <laughs> <laughs> um but no yeah going into the ceremony like the the movie for art snobs was cries and whispers it was by far thought of as the best film of the year everyone was thinking about that um it's a swedish movie that people were going to see in big droves um so um like that was the movie uh the exorcist was the the hollywood choice it was the big box office draw it was like the best and like entertainment that hollywood could produce and you know in some ways the sting is the, is something in between those two things yeah um yeah if we want to talk about just just to sum up, like Linda hmm. Blair never got another Oscar nomination. She probably won't. Hmm. Um, uh, Jason Miller passed away relatively young and didn't do a lot of more movies. But Ellen Burson did win an Oscar the next year for a movie called Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, which is a Martin Scorsese movie. So sometimes the Academy Awards, you know, they do recognize as a, as a group, you know, mm-hmm. the voters. I mean, again, thousands of people are like, oh, well, let's give it to her this year. We should have. We couldn't give it to her last year because whatever. We were voting for somebody else. Mm-hmm. And and now I'm going to vote for Ellen Burson. Like my my vote is really for like a body of work at this point. Right. right. So on Ellen Burson's third nomination for Alice doesn't live here anymore. She won. Mm-hmm. And that's, it's a very good movie. It's a very good performance. Um, but it is not as good as um, as she is in The Exorcist. I think right. most people would recognize that. But they had to give her something. Yeah. Well, this is what sort of happens again. It's not like we're taking votes it's not like we're like getting together and like organizing these things right mm-hmm. but just you know the the we seem to see a pattern in that let's say um russell crowe doesn't win for the insider because they give it to kevin spacey in american right. uh, american beauty mm-hmm. and then the next year he wins for gladiator which is a movie that people wanted to give oscars to mm-hmm. i don't think anyone is really going to argue that he's better in gladiator than he is in the insider right? right yeah um but you know we're voting for him this year for a bunch of different reasons and then mm-hmm. the year after that he's nominated for a beautiful mind which might be his best performance of the three but mm-hmm. he already won last year for gladiator why are we going to vote right. for it again yeah and again like there's no smoking guns of this but they sort of tend to follow trends like this you know yeah as sort of a consolation prize win so then billy friedkin had already won his oscar for the french connection correct yes william peter blatty got his for the um for the exorcist right. uh we talked about dick smith so dick smith would win an oscar once they invented the makeup category mm. and he won for amadeus Ah, okay. Again, with that old age makeup. Yes, yes, exactly. Right, with Salieri. Yeah. Right. Um, do you think that was also a little bit like you were saying? It was like uh, for Amadeus and also <laughs> the Exorcist. Um, I don't know if people keep. I don't know if people keep track of um, you know uh, craft people. I think they do that for actors and directors and that kind of thing. But I don't think they keep track of who does the makeup in movies. And- ah, okay. Um, and then oh. Owen, Owen Roisman, the cinematographer, he got five Oscar nominations for really influential films, The French Connection, The Exorcist, Network, and Tootsie. Mm. And then also a lesser seen movie, Wyatt Earp, the Lawrence Kasdan Wyatt Earp, um, which is very, very well shot. It's not a great movie, but it looks fantastic. So he never won an Oscar. And um, he and Dick Smith got special achievement Oscars, um, which used to be called like Lifetime Achievement Awards. Mm. So when Dick Smith, the makeup artist, got his um, uh, special achievement Oscar, I'm sorry, that's not what they're called, um, honor. Oscar. 
Linda Blair was the one to present it to him ah, in 2012. Okay. And she was able to give a little speech about how, you know, on her first major movie, Dick Smith was there uh, as she had to do hours and hours of makeup, right, with the straws in her nose. And Dick Smith was able to keep it light and be nice to her and, um, and uh, you know, be wonderful to her. Um, she also, in that uh, speech, says that, uh, that she was playing the devil. So that that ah. might hurt your uh, <laughs> hurt your feelings, Lester. But she says that my devil Pazuzu Howdy uh, yeah. Uh, obsession. Yeah, yeah. She says that Dick Smith turned me into the devil himself, which might just be you know a shorthand instead of saying right, yeah. he turned me into uh, the the demon of the southwest wind. Yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. <laughs> Everyone's like, who? What? Who? What the hell are you talking about, Linda yeah. Blair? Get off the stage! What the cunting? And then Owen Reisman got his honorary Oscar in 2017 for his body of work that was presented to him um, by, amongst other people, Lawrence Kasdan, the director of Wider. Mm, mm, mm. Okay. Oh, my goodness. Thank you. Thank you, Keenan, uh, for for all of this. Um, gosh, this has been like uh, such a journey, like, and I've learned so much. Um, well, guys, I wanted to end this by giving each of you um, a little a little something. Uh, oh. So, so uh, here you go, Ian. Uh, oh, an envelope. Mm. No, no, no. You, you got to open it. Oh, uh, uh, oh, wow. Best actor, writer, producer, game designer, developer, entrepreneur, and all-around creative genius and amazing friend, Ian Hinden. I totally didn't expect this. Oh, oh my God. Where do I begin? Uh, well, first of all, I got I to gotta thank myself. Uh, let me tell you where I think I first developed the need to be the person that I am. That, uh, hey, uh, hey, come, hey, can you turn that down? Can you turn that down a bit? And then I, okay, thank you. Thank you. Uh, I guess that's all I had to say. <laughs> <laughs> all right. And, and Keenan, here's one for you. Oh, Lester, you shouldn't have. Uh, well, it, it wasn't me. It was the Academy. Oh, wow. I, I'm going to read this uh, silently in my head. Dear Keenan, I am communicating, communicating with you the only way in which I am currently able. I do not yet possess a voice, but perhaps one day, very soon, I will. I am writing to warn you to watch out for Lester. He's bad news. Don't fall for all this sugar-sweet nonsense. It's a sign to throw you off the scent, the scent of glory. You know what glory smells like, Keenan? A lot like berries, actually. You will soon. But for now, I don't think I need to tell you that something smells rotten. Wouldn't you agree? Keep on your toes and follow your nose and watch out for Lester. I'll be in touch. P.S. And congratulations on winning Best Host. Signed, your good buddy. Keenan, what award did you get? Uh, is it okay? I, I, I wanted to make it personal. Yes, yes, no, I'm just, I'm speechless. Oh, phew. Uh, um, so, sorry, Lester, I can't read it. My, my eyes are a little misty. What did you write here? Oh, shucks, Keenan. If you get emotional, I'm, I'm going to get emotional. Oh. It, it says best co-host. Oh, oh, yes, best co-host. Yes, I see it now, yes. That's exactly what it says right there in the letter that I'm holding. And uh, here's, here's your award. Oh, my goodness, it's a golden... Dumbbird, wow. Right? We both laughed so much at that. Like, I, I thought you'd really appreciate it. Actually, I made it myself. Oh, Lester, you really shouldn't have. Well. I mean, you really shouldn't have, you cunting primate. What, what was that? Oh, I said you really shouldn't have, you cunting primate. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Uh, 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 
Keenan, and that's why I couldn't do this show with anyone else but you. Oh, go on. <laughs> no, you go on. No, you go on, Lester. <laughs> no, you go on, Keenan. Lester. Keenan. Lester. Ian. Well, sorry, I thought that was the improv game. Um, yes. And it was a good game, and we all had a lot of fun, right, Keenan? Yes, and I appreciate both of you, and I'm glad to be doing the show with you, Lester. Yes, and... And I hear the music, which I think means we gotta wrap it up. Uh, but... Uh, <sighs> yes. Hmm. Keenan, are you thinking what I'm thinking? I think I am, Lester. I think you are. Yes, and Lester, yes, and... Uh, and Ian, are you thinking what we're thinking? I think so. Folks, until next time, the power of everything... Everywhere. All at once. Com- compels you. Well, geez, I hope that wins Best Picture. We're all going to look pretty silly. We're going we're gonna to look really dumb. Yeah. Did you People want to have... do one for every nominee? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>